Welcome. Welcome to Seacoast. Hey, while you're uh, topping off the cup and coming back to your seat, Becky and I just uh, actually returned from a trip and you were praying for us and we just want to say thank you. Uh, God did some incredible things by His grace, gave us a chance to train uh, the staff of Compassion International for the first time in Rwanda and a bunch of pastors and Lisa Neal was with us and did a great job at a women's conference and some parenting training and various things that Becky and I and Lisa were able to do. It was just a great week, but thank you for praying for us. And then we went to Ethiopia, which I learned when I was there. Ethiopia is the birthplace of coffee. Very first place on the planet to actually begin to, to roast coffee. And uh, we went to a pastor's conference to train, and they literally uh, brought out a, uh, a hot thing of coals and a, and a pan, and they roasted. They don't just do fresh brewed coffee. They roasted the coffee right in front of us and then ground it and brewed it. That's how they do coffee break. So, Ryan, where are you? Okay. And it was actually the pastor's wife who roasted the beans. So I'm going to talk to Sarah and Ryan, uh, or maybe Becky could do that, and, and maybe we roast the beans for you some week. Would that be cool? Yeah, you don't want that. But anyway... But it was great being in Ethiopia and meeting uh, a bunch of pastors there that want to be trained, and, and then we went and spent some days in Thailand, ended up kind of circling the globe in three weeks. So I have no idea what time of the day it is, but the good thing for you is I'm wide awake, and, uh, and God's Word is good. So welcome to Seacoast. Just thank you for supporting us and praying for us. We really, really appreciate it. So turn to Luke chapter 7 today, Luke chapter 7, as we continue our series through the gospel of Luke, picking it up today in verse 18, verse 18. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for your word and your wisdom. Uh, We desperately need that. And we pray today that as you teach us from your word, that you would bring it alive, help us to enter into the story, help us to learn from the story. Thank you that your spirit inspired Luke to record all this detail about the life and ministry of Jesus. So it led us to learn from the Master himself, from Jesus, today. We ask you to do that. We make ourselves open to your teaching by your spirit, through your word, in Christ's name. And all God's people said, Amen. As I worked on this message this week, as I thought about how to begin, I, my mind went back to just about three weeks ago. Becky and I left LAX, actually had to fly to Houston, which makes no sense, and then connect in Dulles in D.C. to a flight to Brussels and then down into Africa. It was on that leg of the trip between Washington, D.C. and Brussels, one of those long transcontinental flights, I found myself sitting um, on an aisle because my wife no longer sits with me on planes. She likes her aisle seat, so do I, and we rest better that way. So that's kind of our system. That puts us next to strangers a lot. Young man, probably I'd say in his mid-30s, sat down beside me in the middle seat. And and sometimes passengers just want to sleep, and I'm happy to do that. I I just say, though, Lord, if you want a conversation, would you help make it happen? And in this case, this young man uh, was very interested in talking. We had an easy thing to talk about because he was decked out in his 
Pittsburgh uh, paraphernalia. He was a Pirates fan. Pirates fan, Penguins fan. He was from Pittsburgh, and and, and my brother lives just outside of Pittsburgh and is a big Pittsburgh fan. I grew up in West Virginia, just south of Pittsburgh. So I just said, so I noticed, are you a Pittsburgh fan or are you from there? And he says, oh, yeah, I'm from Pittsburgh. I said, so I'm just curious, what do you do and why are you going to Brussels, Belgium? And he said, well, I go to Brussels several times every year. My company has an office over there and and uh, I said, so what do you do? He says, I'm an industrial engineer. I said, so that's curious. Tell me more. <clears throat> he said, well, our company <clears throat> makes high-grade aluminum products. Not like cans, okay, but high-grade. I said, give me an example of what you sell. He said, well, for example, we're sitting in these airline seats. He looked down. And he said, you see that, that strut that all these seats are anchored to on the plane? He says, we make those. And they have to be extremely expensive, but extremely high quality, very strong, because even in a plane crash, we've got to guarantee that your seat's not going to fly loose. And I said, I am glad that you're good at what you do. I hope we don't have to test it. But thanks for making me safer. He says, you're welcome. He says, so what do you do? I said, well, I have kind of a... Real blessed job. I said, I'm fortunate enough. My wife and I across the aisle. This beautiful woman is my wife. And, uh, and Becky was already <laughs> just kidding. But actually, a little, I think she was actually. But only woman I know that can fall asleep on the tarmac before takeoff. But we were getting ready to take off. He said, I said, yeah, my wife and I, uh, several times a year, we're blessed. We, uh, we go mostly to Africa. We're headed for Kigali, Rwanda to train, um, we do leadership training for nonprofits, relief agencies, um, and in this case, Compassion International, and their staff, and a bunch of pastors, and we do leadership training. That's what God has given us the honor of doing, and we're real fortunate to do that. And then we'll be going to Ethiopia and, and elsewhere. And he said, that's amazing. He said, it must feel really good to be able to do something that you feel really helps people. I said, well, thanks. I said, to be honest, it's just that God has been very gracious to us, and we are Christians, and as followers of Christ, we just are, we feel like it's God has given us freely uh, so much life, and it's our chance in this phase of our life to try to give back um, to some leaders in Africa I said, but thanks for what you do, because without what you do, I could never get there. And, uh, and then I, I just kind of asked, so tell me a little more about your story. I said, you know, obviously my faith is kind of at the root of what I'm doing, and, but do you have kind of a faith journey? And if you're open to it, I'd love to hear your story. And he was very open, and his response went like this. He said, well... I kind of today probably would describe myself as an agnostic. God may be out there, but I have no idea if he is or not. And, um, and to be honest, I'm kind of done with the church thing. I said, what kind of, if you don't mind sharing with me, what led to that? And he thought and he said, you know, I think it started when I was about, I think, I think he said 14 years old and I grew up in the church. We went to church every week. In his case, it happened to be a Roman Catholic church. He said, but uh, when I was 14, my mom got cancer. 
and uh, prayed, lit a candle, did all the things the church tells you to do. And she died. And then there's been so much junk that's gone on with the church. He didn't have to go any detail. That I just kind of decided when I left home as a young adult, I'm, I'm kind of done with that. I don't think it has a place for me. And I, have, I walked away. And I've never gone back. Maybe someday I will, but for now I'm kind of done with that. What would you say to that guy? Um, because I think all of us have these conversations, right? You don't, have to, you don't have to get on a plane for Europe or Africa to have these conversations. We're all surrounded by people who, for one reason or another, kind of say, you know, I'm kind of done with God, or I'm done with church, or I had this experience and now I'm, it's not part of my life. And, I th- and what the Lord just kind of placed on my mind, at least at that time, was I said, well, let me encourage you first. Let me just say to you, I'm sorry for what you went through. I said, I think if I had experienced the view of God that you grew up with, that pretty much it's you having to work your way to be better, to try to please God, and if I had experienced the death of my mother, at age 14, I probably would be done with it too. I'd probably be sitting in your seat right now, spiritually. Um, so I empathize with you. And then I said, but I would say, I said, do you, want, do you want a tip or a suggestion? He said, sure, sure. And I said, I think you jumped too far. I said, you went from being involved in your church, and, but yet obviously some things weren't working. It wasn't working for you. God disappointed you. I, I get that. I said, but you jumped all the way to saying, I'm done with God. I'm done with it all. I said, I think there's something in between. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I would just encourage you when, you, when you're on your trip and you get some time, I'd encourage you to take a look at Jesus Christ because I can um, empathize with saying I'm kind of done with church, but have you asked yourself the question, what do, I, what do you still think about Jesus? Who do you believe Jesus was? Who was he? What did he do? You know, because, man, churches all around the world of every type have screwed up at times and disappointed you. In fact, I've probably disappointed people, and I've been a pastor for 38 years. I know I've disappointed people. But the, quest, the better question that you still got to struggle with is, do you, what, do you, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about Jesus? Who was he? Because that may be the most important question that you still need to kind of struggle through. And I'll give you my card. If you ever want to call and have someone just to talk to about it, I'm happy to process it with you. But that's what's changed my life has not been church, it's been Jesus. So I'd encourage you to kind of back up a couple steps and say, what about this Jesus? Who was he? And the reason I share that story in length with you was the question that that young man was dealing with is the exact question that's in our passage today. Let me set the setting for you, and then I'll show you why I say that. 
the setting for this story is the movement of Jesus Christ is growing. To kind of back up in Luke and some of the sermons that Ryan and Matt and others and Joe have been laying down, what we've seen is basically that Jesus kind of went public when John the Baptist baptized him. Now that's going to be important, so remember that. John the Baptist was proclaiming repentance. He was calling the nation of Israel to repent of their sins. Hey, let's clean up our act. Let's be ready because I believe, and John as a prophet was announcing, Messiah is coming. The Savior is coming. The Messiah, the Deliverer, the coming King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the Promised One is coming. So let's prepare as a nation. And he was challenging people to be baptized as a symbol of their desire to prepare themselves, cleanse themselves, be ready for when the Messiah shows up. And it was at that moment, at one of those events, that John, inspired by the Spirit of God, looks over, he sees Jesus, because some people were even saying to John the Baptist, we think you're the Messiah. John says, no, 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 you got it wrong. I'm not the Messiah. And he looked up and he saw Jesus coming. And this was when Jesus first came out publicly with his ministry. And he said, but here comes one who I'm not even worthy to untie the guy's shoes. Here comes the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Here comes Messiah. And Jesus asked John to baptize him as a symbol of identification with what God was doing and and, and Jesus was baptized but then John went on preaching and Jesus went off in the wilderness 40 days remember the story Ryan taught it did a great job unpacking that story of the temptations in the wilderness for 40 days so Jesus is nowhere to be seen while John keeps preaching then Jesus begins his ministry and John keeps preaching and what happens which you which we learn about in Luke chapter 3, if you go back, is John is, I mean, he is challenging the whole nation to repent and prepare, and he's not afraid. John is this fearless kind of a prophetic guy. He even challenges Herod, who is one of the real political scuzzballs of all time. That's in the Greek language. Look it up. But that's Herod. Herod is the kind of guy that would have an affair with his brother's wife and then marry his brother's wife. Uh, and, and, and so Herod was a very immoral, nasty guy. And John, he was gutsy enough, John the Baptist, to confront even Herod. Well, Herod didn't like being called out for his own sin. So Herod does what guys with power do. They threw John in prison. So John is in prison now, and Jesus is beginning to build his movement, and his movement is spreading from Luke chapter 5 to chapter 7, and it begins to hit a climax as Jesus is rounding up his disciples. He's calling Peter. He's calling some of his disciples to, hey, leave what you're doing, follow me, and that's happening. He's also doing more and more miracles because his miracles are the testament that he's the real deal. And in fact, here's what precedes our story today. Pick it up in chapter 7, verse 11. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a city called Nan, and his disciples were going with him, accompanied by a large crowd. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow, 
So he's a widow and she's lost her only son, which means she is destitute. And a sizable crowd of the city was with her. I mean, this funeral drew out a huge crowd. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion on her, verse 13, and said, do not weep. And he came up and he touched the coffin and everyone stopped. And Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up. And began to speak. Jesus gave him back to his mother. And fear gripped everyone. And they began glorifying God saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. And this report concerning Jesus went all over Judea. And all over the surrounding district. And it says in now in our passage... So Jesus has just did the ultimate miracle. I mean, he's been healing the blind and people of leprosy and all kinds of diseases, but it's another thing to step it up and you got a coffin coming by with a man that they know is dead and Jesus stops and tells them to rise up. So Jesus had just right in public pulled off a resurrection. And John's disciples are listening. Now, where is John? See, nowhere in this story. What's happened to John the Baptist? Well, in the meantime, John the Baptist has been thrown, as I mentioned, in jail. He's sitting in jail. Eventually, by the way, this Herod's uh, illegitimate wife is going to eventually cook up a scheme to tell her husband, um, I want John's head on a platter. And, she, and he does it. I'm not going to go into the detail. But John is not going to be leaving prison with his head. He's going to be beheaded in prison. His head's brought out on a platter. To sh- you know, it's, it's gruesome. But the reality is John right now is in prison. And he's sitting there and he thinks, you know something? I just baptized the Messiah. I just baptized the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. The King is coming and I've seen Him myself and I know He's on sight and I know He's around, but yet He disappeared on me and John, was, John is sitting in jail and he's having his own questions and doubts. And that, you've got to understand that backdrop because that's you and me. See, sometimes you find yourself in life and you're asking, God, where are you? God, why not? God, why haven't you done this yet? Those are common questions that I ask God at times. You you do too, right? So this is John sitting in jail, and he believes in Jesus, but yet Jesus, so far, the Jesus that he he thinks is going to be the the reigning king who's going to get rid of Rome and rid of the nasty, uh, unrighteous leaders and bring his kingdom to, to reality. And the only kingdom reality John knows is my tail end is in jail. And he'll soon be beheaded. So what does John do? The disciples of John, verse 18, this is our passage. The disciples of John reported to him about all these things that were happening. The resurrection of the young man, the healing of people. And summoning two of his disciples, because you know, his disciples are still allowed to visit him in jail and give him updates. So they give him the update that, wow, this Jesus really is doing all these miracles. So summoning two of his disciples, verse 19, look at it. John sent them to the Lord saying, are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? 
when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you to ask, are you the coming one, the expected one, the Messiah, or do we need to be looking for someone else? And at this very time, Jesus cured many people of diseases and afflictions and evil spirits, and he gave back sight to the blind. And in fact, if you read this in the Greek language, that phrase, in this very time, it could be translated, and at that very hour. So I believe when these disciples of John the Baptist show up, Jesus at that very time is healing people, giving sight back to blind people and everything else. And Jesus says to them, Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf now hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. It could be translated, blessed are everyone who doesn't stumble over me. And that's the message he sends back to John. What do we learn? What do we learn from this? I think what we learn first is they ask the right question. See, John is having some doubt. I don't think John's lost his faith. John's doing what every one of us do at times in our life. Whenever you know, we, we pray, we think we know what God is up to and what God is doing, and God is not exactly following our timetable or following our plan, or we find ourselves trapped in some circumstance of life that is painful. And, 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 and John is, I think, having honest doubt. He's got at least a need to be reassured because Jesus isn't performing what he thought he should do. He, you know, what's going on? Jesus, maybe I was wrong. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's another one. So he sends his disciples to check Jesus out. And so he's asking the right question, though. And see, that's the question that I just want to pause to say, we, I think today as the church of Jesus Christ, need to realize there are a lot of people like that young man that I met on the plane. In fact, a lot of them are right here in this room because at times we all perhaps have looked at life and it doesn't line up with what we think God should be doing. Maybe something has gone down bad in our life or maybe we've been disgusted with all the religion going on in the world but not, not the real thing. So the question they ask is the right question for not just then, but for today. And that question is, are you, Jesus, really? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Savior of humanity? Are you really the coming King? Or do we need to be looking somewhere else? Because we need help. So they ask the right question. So Jesus gives the right answer. And the answer Jesus gives is, well, Jesus doesn't scold them for their bad theology or lack of faith or anything. I love Jesus' answer. He just says, you know, just go back and tell him what you hear and what you see. Tell him what you see and hear. And and as as I kind of thought, well, what's he referring to? Uh, To me, it's kind of a three-part outline in my mind. Number one, tell him what you see in me. You know, Jesus the man see jesus the man see jesus the one that is healing the sick but also speaking truth and confronting hypocrisy 
in, in, in the world and in religion. See the real Jesus. Don't look at the church. Look at Jesus. See Jesus. Uh, in your outline, I give you a cross-reference. If you want to follow the outline, if you're taking some notes, I'll make it easy on you. And that's John 1.14. Because when the, when, the apostle, when the Apostle John describes Jesus... I love the, the shortest description of Jesus in Scripture. It's in John 1, 14. It says, Jesus was a man full of grace and full of truth. Now, what a beautiful description of Jesus. He is full of grace. Grace is giving someone what they do not deserve. Grace is giving people love when they deserve something unloving. Jesus was known for loving the unlovely. For, for being full of grace and forgiveness and love. But Jesus was always also full of truth. There's a lot of people that want to be full of love and just love everyone and forgive everyone. And, but Jesus also spoke truth, some truth that people didn't agree with even. Jesus was full of truth, full of grace, all at the same time, the perfect blend without compromising either one. You know, it's, it's amazing. This very week, as we, as we celebrate the week leading up to Easter, we're going to, if you read the scriptures this week and read through the Easter story of the final days of the life of Christ, you'll read when he went on trial. Even his enemies couldn't come up with some legitimate thing to accuse him of, except for the fact that he claimed to be Messiah, claimed to be God, claimed that he and his father were one, things like that. They didn't like his claims or his teaching, but they had no problem with his character. Who's going to argue against the character of Jesus? He's full of grace, full of truth all the time. Even when Jesus, write down Luke 23, 4, if you want to look it up. Luke 23, 4, Jesus is on trial before Pilate. <clears throat> and even Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. I mean, what's he done wrong? This guy is innocent. He's your problem. So look at the man Jesus Christ. See, I think we need to be challenging ourselves and our culture. Look at Jesus. Forget the church for right now. Tell me what you think about Jesus. Because the church is the imperfect body of Christ. It is the body of Jesus Christ on the planet. It's part of God's plan. I'm, I'm very pro-church. Don't give up on the church. But don't expect it to be perfect because we're not followers of church. We're followers of Jesus. Did you catch that? And I think our world thinks that we just follow the church. It's our religion. Jesus says, no, 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 focus on me. Take a look at me. Number two, he says, take a look at my miracles. That's the second thing. See what I'm doing. And Jesus lists them even. He says, look, the, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf receive their hearing back, and ultimately the dead are even being raised. In other words, take a look at my miracles and believe in me because of my works. Where is that taught? Elsewhere. In John chapter 10. Put your finger in Luke. Ready? Here we go. Go to John chapter 10. I want you to see this in your Bibles. Hope you're bringing them. You need to get familiar with the book. Here we go. John chapter 10, verse 25. Jesus is being confronted. In fact, the religious leaders, the Jews, were gathering around Jesus. Verse 24, 10, 10 24. In John, the Jews were gathering around saying to Jesus, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, the Messiah, the, the, if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Now what a dumb thing to say. 
It's not like Jesus hadn't been telling them plainly, right? So here's how Jesus answers, verse 25. He says, I told you. I've already told you who I am more than once, but you do not believe. And it's because you don't want to believe in me that you keep acting like I'm not telling you, but I've already told you. And then he says, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You haven't... You're not one of my followers. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. I and my Father, verse 30, are the same. We are one. And then it says, And the Jews picked up stones to kill Jesus, to stone him, because... He said to them, I showed you many good works from my Father. Of which of them are you stoning me, Jesus says. And the Jews answered, we're not stoning you for a good work. We stone you for blasphemy because being a mere man, you make yourself out to be God. Jesus didn't stutter. He wasn't unclear. Even his enemies that did not believe in him knew he was claiming to be God, come from heaven to earth to be the Messiah, the Savior, and they couldn't handle that. See, it was their, it's their unbelief that was behind their opposition. But Jesus said, I'm doing these miracles for a reason. It's not just because I like healing people on my day off or on my day on. It's because I want to testify that I really am the Son of God. So that when I die on the cross this week for your sins you'll understand that this is God sacrificing His sinless Son on the cross, and I will prove it with one final miracle, by the way, and that is I will be resurrected. That's next Sunday. But I want you to see that the miracles of Jesus had purpose. They were to assure us that Jesus Christ is worthy of our faith. He is the real thing. He is not a myth. He is not... A, an illusion. He is not a religious invention. He lived, he died, he rose from the dead, and the miracles he did during his life, including his resurrection, are the ultimate proof. This is Jesus. He says, I'm not going to ask you just to put your blind faith in me. Put an intelligent faith in me because you've seen my works. And then finally, Jesus adds one more thing. And also tell him that the good news is being preached even to the poor. The gospel is being proclaimed even to the poor. Jesus says, hear my message. So Jesus says, look at the man. Look at Jesus. Number two, look at his miracles. Number three, listen to his message. My message. Go back with one slide. See his miracles, but also listen to his message. Hear his message. Good news is preached to the poor. Do we have that? Maybe we don't. That's the next point. You see, Jesus is saying, look, this is about the good news. What was the good news? Well, the good news was explained in one reference. John chapter 10, he says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. In John 10, 27, I will save forever those who come to me in faith and no one can snatch them out of my hand. John 11, verse 25, write that reference. John eleven twenty five. he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who, he who believes in me will live even if and when he dies. 
There's no death. You don't really die as a person with faith in Jesus. Okay, your body stops working, but guess what? Your soul never dies. It goes directly into the presence of God because you are saved and secured and held tight by the grace of God, by the work of Jesus Christ, His death, His resurrection for you. Amen? Yeah. Is this good news or bad news? It's good news. See, our culture wants to act like Christianity is full of bad news. There's no bad news except some things that our culture doesn't like. And that leads to the final point of this sermon. Because what Jesus says next puzzled me when I first read it. He says, go back, tell John the Baptist what you see. Tell him what you see in the man, what you see in the miracles, what you see in my message. The gospel is being proclaimed not to the powerful, but even to the poor. And then he ends with this reminder. Blessed, verse 23, Blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Interesting. Why would he say that? See, Jesus is calling us out to realize that even though I'm doing these miracles, even though the gospel is being proclaimed to the poor, you got a decision to make. And the decision, I believe, in this passage is faith or offense. How do you respond to Jesus? And by the way, in the outline, mark out when it says chapter 14 in Luke, that was supposed to be chapter 7. It was my fault. I typed it on jet lag. I have an excuse. (laughs) Only on jet lag can I multiply 7 into 14. I have no idea how that happened. Okay. But anyway, it's not our staff. It was me. But I corrected it on the screen. So in 723, Jesus closes by saying, you're going to be blessed Jesus doesn't rob you of life. He blesses you with life. Blessed is the one who, and the implication is, you believe in me. But you're not going to be blessed if you stumble over me. The word takes offense at me. Kind of means to stumble over me. And and see, back then, not everybody believed in Jesus. Do you realize that? Even the people that saw the miracles. Some people still chose to dislike Jesus. Today, even if you study the life of Jesus, not everybody believes. Why is it that Jesus warns us, hey, but the blessing comes through faith and not uh, letting me be an offense to you? How does Jesus offend people? That, That was the logical question I had to ask when I'm working on the message. And I thought about not just then, but today. Back then and today, I think it's the same thing. There's a variety of reasons, but I'm just going to give you my top three. Are you ready? Why do people get offended by something as awesome as Jesus Christ, the man working the miracles, delivering the message of forgiveness that's given freely by grace? How does that offend people? Well, here's my top three. Number one. Faith in Jesus requires humility. That is, admitting our own inability to save ourselves. The world is attracted to religion, but it is offended by Jesus. Because what Jesus says is, you can't save yourself. In other words, religion is kind of like a self-help program to make yourself good enough to get into heaven. 
And it's kind of built on, every religion is built on this idea of God kind of weighing the scale. You know, you got your good and your bad. And, and you, you get religious so you can get a little more good, a little less bad. And hopefully you slip into heaven or eternal life or whatever is after this death. That's religion. That was not the message of Jesus. Because Jesus was full of truth. And the truth is God is a holy God who demands that we, our sin needs to be paid for. And Jesus, that's why God had to come up with a better plan than religion. God had to come up with a plan in which the guilt of my sin was truly paid for, truly atoned for. And that's why Jesus goes to the cross. He takes the sin of humanity on himself as the sinless son of God. He's the only worthy sacrifice that could pull that off. And he died for you and me. And he rose from the dead to prove that his sacrifice finished it. That we are forgiven of all sin we're made children of god we receive the blessings of being a child of god all as a gift from god not something we earn humanity doesn't like it when they're told you can't earn it you can't be good enough because we all still sin humanity doesn't like that we they'd rather buy into a philosophy of life or religion that says i think i can make myself good enough because I'll be better than the average guy, and God will understand that. That is a lie from the pit of hell. But it pervades religious thinking around the world, and especially in America. It's the root of every world religion except the truth of Christianity. Don't buy into it. Jesus himself, or the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians, write this down. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Um, what's the reference? Do, 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 do. Here it is, verse 18 to 25. I don't have time to teach it, but do the appointments with God, the personal encounters with God this week. Uh, it's where the Apostle Paul says, you know, the cross is a stumbling block for some people. The idea that God came and died on a cross for our sins and it's through faith in him. That's not easy for the world to buy into. And he says, he says, because Jews want a sign and Greeks are looking for wisdom. And the reality is, the reality is God doesn't play by our rules. God's not consulting us on how to solve the problem. So that's the, that's the thing. So uh, realize that Jesus Christ offends some people. The concepts of grace, which the scriptures say, for those who believe, it's the power of God. It's amazing. Those of us in the room that have come to faith and we understand it and believe it, it's like, wow, why wouldn't everyone believe this? Well, the first reason is because it calls us to humbly admit that I can't do it. Only Jesus Christ can do it. Number two, I think following Jesus after you put faith in him requires repentance. Facing moral responsibility. What I mean by that is, I'm not saying that our repentance of our sin earns anything from God. It doesn't. But repentance or a changed life, turning in a new direction as you follow Jesus, is an expected result of salvation. It is the fruit of faith. 
I don't believe it's the root of faith. It doesn't earn it, but it's the fruit that hangs on our life. Our life gets changed. We've got to change our thinking about what is moral and what is immoral. And guess what? It's not humanity's job to define morality. How do you ask a bunch of immoral people to define what is immoral and what is, what is immoral and what is moral? Morality is based in a holy God who tells us what's right and wrong because he's our creator. But that's not a popular idea. People stumble over the idea that if I'm going to follow Jesus, Jesus followed the Word of God. He affirmed the Word of God. If I believe in Jesus Christ, I've got to believe in the Word of God. And some things in the Word of God will offend people in today, in today's world. Views of sexuality, views of morality, views of right and wrong, views of of all kinds of things. You know, so it's like... That's one reason people don't want to follow Jesus because they're going to have to face some moral responsibility. As soon as you say Jesus is God, that means I'm not God. And if I'm not God, I can't make up the rules. But American religious thinking and philosophy today in this culture, in the West especially, and it's going global, but especially here, is I want to have God available to me when I need him. So God is a heaven-based therapist that when I'm really hurting or we go through a national crisis, we can call out and God will show up. Until that time, God will leave us alone like we want to be left alone. That is not the truth about God. But it's American thinking. So following Jesus means we've got to face our own moral issues. But the good thing is Jesus says, I forgive you. I'm full of grace. I love you with all your moral issues. I want to help you deal with them. That's the good news. That's the gospel. But that's one reason the gospel is offensive. Third reason the gospel is offensive is obedience to Jesus requires surrender to him, allowing him to be Lord of our life. It's an old-fashioned idea. Jesus wants to be Savior. He also wants to be our Lord. And the good news is he's a Lord who loves you, and wants to give you life. He doesn't want to rob you of stuff. If I were to summarize all of this in one statement, it's this. Stumbling over Jesus or unbelief in Jesus is more often rooted in moral challenges, not intellectual struggles. Now, is there something about Christianity or about God that offends me? I don't agree with that. Therefore, I do not believe in Jesus. Now, people will cast it as if I've studied religion and I don't think Jesus was real or I don't think he rose from the dead or I don't think this or I don't think the Bible's true. Guess what? In 99% of the cases that I've interacted with, under the surface is a moral struggle or a life struggle, a painful struggle. And that's why we step away from God. I end where I started. That young man on the plane was honest enough to say that the first thing that happened that caused me to begin to step away from God and away from his church was I was a young boy and my mom died. And I prayed and I lit a candle and I did everything the church told me to do. And I was a good little boy and my mom still died. And I don't want to follow a God like that. 
So there'll be times in your life where you're going to have bad circumstances. You're going to be like John the Baptist. You might say in life, you're sitting in prison. And you're saying, God, why aren't you delivering me? I thought you were going to be the king. But God allows us to go through suffering at times for different reasons. Uh, it's okay to have doubts. It's normal to have doubts when you're suffering. Whether you're John the Baptist or whether you're that young man on the plane. Um, but bring your doubts back to Jesus. Ask the right question. Well, wait a minute. What do I believe about Jesus? Not the church. What do I believe about Jesus? What do I know is true of him, his miracles, his message, his manner? Do I want to follow him? Does he deserve my love and obedience? Answer, you bet. Pray with me. Father God, thank you so much for the lessons from Jesus, from the answers he gave to John when John was full of questions, maybe even full of some doubts. Father, at times when we have questions and doubts, I pray that we will just come back to the basic truths about Jesus and that we as part of his church uh, could shine with authenticity, admitting our doubts even, but yet affirming our faith that yes, indeed, he is Messiah. He is Savior. He is Lord. He's full of grace, full of truth, and he's the one we choose. If you've never made that decision, maybe today, right now, I just encourage you to pray with me and say, Lord Jesus, I choose you. I put my faith and trust in you as my Savior. And may I begin to follow you as my Lord. We love you. Father, even as we worship in giving now, let our giving be a spontaneous joyful, generous experience because you so generously gave to us. We worship you in our gifts in Christ's name. Amen.